The Sunday Baroque podcast is made possible by WSHU and the Friends of Sunday Baroque. You can find out more about the Friends of Sunday Baroque and find out how to become one yourself by visiting our website, sundaybaroque.org, under the Contact tab. Zachary Caratine is an American violinist, violist, conductor, and music educator, and he studied violin performance at Rice University Shepherd School of Music and earned his Master of Music degree in orchestral conducting from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is currently the music director of Boulder Bach Festival, and he has a new recording called Metamorphosis that features him playing unaccompanied cello suites by Johann Sebastian Bach on the viola. Zachary Caratine is joining me on Zoom to talk about his new recording and his life as a musician. Welcome. Thank you. So first of all, this has been a very tough year for everyone, especially people in the performing arts. Things are starting to open up now gradually, but how have you been doing? Well, it has been a challenging year for my colleagues and my family, and and, uh, I lost um, several friends and family Mm either to COVID or to other um, illnesses during the past year and a half. Mm-mm, and uh, obviously um, I've lost the, the social interaction with audiences, uh, which has had an effect on so many of us on, on both sides of the stage. At the Boulder Bach Festival, we um, created online concerts, uh, concert films that uh, explored nature and music in the concert hall. So we did performances in the mountains and on the side of the river and uh, uh, and also in, in the halls throughout the region. And when we were choosing repertoire and texts uh, for the vocal works, uh, we really wanted to look at our shared experience uh, really across the planet uh, during the pandemic um, and how uh, the seasons um, of the of the year have really uh, had an ongoing effect in our shared consciousness and experience uh, with a lot of the fear and insecurity and sadness uh, and devastation. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really meaningful year of, of online concerts um, for my colleagues and for me. Um, and it was our way of, of uh, engaging our audience and sharing uh, even though we can't be in the same space together yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, um, how did you first get into music? Well, when I was three years old and we lived in Philadelphia, I saw a violin hanging on a wall and mm-hmm. I was just captivated by the shape. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And uh, in kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher brought a violin for show and tell. And so I actually got to play one. And uh, she called my parents and convinced them that I should be playing the violin. Uh, And it went on from there. Uh, When I was in high school, I had a really uh, wonderful opportunity. My, My teacher, Kenneth Goldsmith, insisted that I study 18th century music and 17th century music from primary sources, manuscripts, first editions, on the original instruments. So gut-strung, Baroque violin, Baroque bow, uh, 
also with viola. And he felt that uh, at the same time, as I was studying the, the major concertos, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, that I needed to have the two experiences at the same time and to understand the stylistic differences and also what was particular and distinct idiomatically about the different setups, the chin rest or no chin rest and how it changes your technique and, and also looking at rhetoric and music and, and how uh, Boeing practices changed and evolved over the centuries. So for me, uh, for example, my first time playing Bach Chacon was without a chin rest on a Baroque violin mm -hmm. with gut strings. And, uh, and from the manuscript, I had never seen an edition of the, of the Bach Chacon when I first played it. Um, and so that was really something that changed my personal direction in life as a teacher and as a musician, uh, such that by the time I was an undergrad, I had read so many treatises that uh, undergrad seemed to be more about finding where to break the rules mm -hmm. uh, rather than where to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. And I remember Ken Goldsmith said to me in, in those years, you know, the art uh, is, is uh, in the absence of the rules or the departure from the rules yeah. and that you have to understand them to, to know where the edge is, um, where the boundaries of good taste lie. And that exploration is very personal uh, but that actually um, a real virtuoso of the 18th century would have been intentionally breaking rules uh, as an expressive device. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, for me, examining pulse and form and rhetoric and dance and song, uh, I, I think in some ways, uh, I, I don't want to exaggerate this, but I like to look at it a little bit like jazz. Mm -hmm. in that the, the expressive palette is enormous and the color shading and the ebb and flow of time uh, have so many possibilities. Uh, I'm thinking of the choose-your-own-adventure novels from my youth, where uh, in Bach, the, the implied harmony uh, offers different roots in the phrase and different pivot moments and partial cadences, moments of repose, and these, how we navigate the phrasing is so personal and has so many possibilities. But that's not to say that it's chaotic or that there aren't principles underlying uh, uh, really the meaning, the content of this music. There are principles um, and there are some very uh, valid rules, but, but in a way, the unaccompanied works uh, seem to be something between notated music and improvisation. Mm -hmm. And where exactly they lie might be determined by the character of the dance. Mm -hmm. A faster dance uh, is going to be very different than a prelude, uh, a harmonic exploration outside of time, mm -hmm. outside of pulse. Uh, so anyway, uh, for me, having that teacher, Ken Goldsmith in high school, uh, was so uh, important. Uh, for my interest in music, getting back to, to that and, and my passion for it, he also regularly gifted me books and LP records. Mm. And uh, um, I have stacks of them on my shelves to this day with his inscriptions mm. on, on the title page. And those books uh, were always given to me to open up doors for um, possibilities and, and areas of research that he thought would be interesting to me. 
And so over the years, what he gave me, I, I knew him for 33 years, by the way, and, until he passed away last summer. Um, but uh, whenever he uh, would, would give me um, artwork or books or, or recordings, they were always um, a part of an ongoing exploration that went on for decades, hmm. uh, such that if I look back at all of the books, I can almost see my development in, in music and musical thought through Ken Goldsmith's gifts to me. Wow. Wow. That's really extraordinary. A lot of people I speak to, musicians I speak to, um, who specialize in you know a, a period instrument of whatever kind, um, Often it's it's much later that they're introduced to early music, and you know, they sort of stumble on it maybe in college or post college. You know, somebody puts a baroque violin in their hands or a baroque flute or whatever it is, and um, so for you to have that nurturing, right? You know, from such a young age, and have someone with such expertise really feeding you these very important resources, if you will, um, that's that's quite uh, that's quite a mentor. <laughs> Yes, and in fact, it reminds me of a great story. Uh, when I was in undergraduate studies, I was playing a professional uh, gig with a, a small uh, period instrument Baroque ensemble, and we were playing a French uh, repertoire performance. And one of the colleagues in the ensemble insisted that we play every trill in the same manner, no matter what the tempo of the movement. And I, I was young, um, and I just felt intrinsically that there's something wrong with that. And so I went to a payphone, if you remember those, <laughs> after the rehearsal, and I called Mr. Goldsmith and I, I said, you know, something feels uh, very um, constraining about approaching the trills all the same, uh, even in this very mannered repertoire with a lot of artifice. And so he said, why don't you come over tomorrow? And when I went to his house the next day, he had taken 22 post-it notes and had found in various books and, and original sources, he'd found 22 examples of different ways of playing trills in French music from the decade or two of the music that I was playing. Wow. And he handed me the books so that I could take them home and study them. And he said, here's the thing. Don't say anything at rehearsal tonight. Do your job, be a good colleague, make music. But now you understand that your instinct was in fact valid and uh, and now you can read more about it. Ah, yeah, yeah. A lesson in diplomacy too. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think more of our colleagues should have some training. It's sort of charm school, you know? <laughs> it goes a long way. It goes a long way, yes, it does. So tell me, what is it, uh, in your opinion, in your experience, what is it about Johann Sebastian Bach? You know, if you ask musicians, no matter what their specialty, rock musicians, jazz musicians, rap musicians even, um, what, is it, what is it, in your opinion, your experience about Johann Sebastian Bach that is transcendent? What's inspiring about it? With Bach, we have a longing to be one with the divine that seems to permeate virtually all of the music that he wrote in one way or another. Sometimes it's an ecstasy in angst or in suffering. Uh, sometimes it's a joy, uh, maybe a promise of what's to come. 
and I don't think that he's singular in this, especially the further back we go in the Bach influences generations before, uh, we do find this to be a, a common trait in, in European music um, in the early Baroque and before. But as we get into the high Baroque and uh, in Bach's maturity, we still find that to be his focus. And even as uh, other uh, composers of the time start to look at more gallant styles and uh, uh, music that is uplifting uh, for sure, we still see in Bach, even in the most uplifting danceical music, we find this harmonic underpinning that is so profound and really a vocabulary of harmony and counterpoint that I think accesses the inner reaches of our consciousness and the human experience mm. um, such that let's take a, a single movement of a work, you know, a, a, a saraband, for example, and then we look at the affect or the, the character of that saraband. And let's say that this particular saraband we're discussing is sad. Well, now let's look at the, the human experience of sadness. We lose a family member uh, and the, the family member passes away and we are struck with sadness and we have grief. And then we go through the memories, the beautiful memories, and then we go through a kind of healing. And there might be months of sadness where the colors and the tempo of sadness are constantly changing, transforming, evolving. I think of that in, in for example, in Bach's music, um, that there will be a, a musical motif, a small collection of notes in a certain rhythm. And that motif will repeat again and again throughout the movement. Well, the motif takes on a life of its own and there might be a foreboding harmony and then uh, a joyful, delightful uh, harmony. And as that motif uh, travels through the experience of the movement, the saraband, uh, it can push forward or pull backward. It can be a little more connected or a little more buoyant and light and maybe even a shorter. And so these transformations that occur uh, happen because of the harmony. And a lot of times in the cello suites, the harmony is implied. We might not get a full chord, uh, but instead a broken chord or a chord with only two notes that could be one harmony or another, and there's kind of this ambiguity. And so it's that subtle relationship to harmonic progression and the counterpoint that I think in Bach uh, has a vocabulary that's deep, deeply meaningful, uh, combined with this, this longing uh, uh, really to be with God. Uh, and that's in the, the vocal texts, but it's also in, in the harmony, in the counterpoint, mm -hmm. in the structure, uh, uh, such that uh, there's a sense of searching. Uh, there's um, always a sense, I think, of uh, trying to access what is deep and profound. And because of that, uh, one, I think, some listeners would say that it opens up our sense of community, um, our perception, our awareness of one another, our awareness of ourselves and how our actions affect the whole system of society. 
so I do think that the music is community building in a way that is really um, subtle and nuanced and deep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's now talk about your recording, Metamorphosis. The unaccompanied cello suites uh, by Bach are really like the holy grail for every <laughs> serious cellist. Um, why play them on viola? How, how is this different? How did you approach this? Well, I've played the cello suites and the violin sonatas and partitas on four different instruments at least. Mm-hmm. Actually, probably more now that I think about it. Cello da Spala, which is the shoulder cello. Uh, and that is an 18th century instrument. Uh, viola and Baroque viola. Violin in both Baroque and modern setups. And I've also played them on electric violin utilizing reverb, digital reverb, to basically bring the acoustic space of the European chapel to outdoor festivals. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that's really um, been an interesting exploration because by uh, having the reverb um, in an outdoor arena, I'm able to access polyphony. That is the resonance will let certain notes linger throughout a flourish of other notes creating that uh, counterpoint that you can really get when you're playing in a stone chapel. Right. Uh, and so I, sometimes the electric violin has allowed me to bring the chapel to my home and to explore counterpoint um, and, and how to uh, elongate certain notes and how to uh, bring out the middle voice. That is a lot of times we have a bass voice and a treble voice. And then there's a middle voice in the counterpoint that in the cello suites disappears and reappears. And uh, sometimes we need to elongate a note or two, make them last longer so that the listener can catch that, that uh, augmented middle voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And reverb really helps with that, whether it's natural or, or whether it's electronic. Uh, I chose the viola for this recording because I knew I was going to Sono Luminous Studios in Virginia, and they own an historic chapel uh, that is small. Um, The outside is stone, but the inside is all wood, and it's pretty clear and warm uh, and very intimate. And I knew I would be alone. Uh, Of course, um, this is pandemic recording, so... The producer was in Cleveland, patched in electronically, uh, Erica Brenner. And then the engineer, Dan Shores, was in his booth in another room with his mask. And, uh, and I was alone in the chapel uh, doing one suite per day for three days. And so in a way, you can imagine just sitting by a creek or um, being alone with, by candlelight, that the experience was very quiet. Um, and time seemed to expand. Mm -hmm. And I felt that for that acoustic environment that the gut-strung viola uh, with the period bow was really the the brush. Uh, If we think about the bow as as a painter's brush and we have wider brushes and and we have tiny brushes and a lot of times uh, the the articulation that we use is uh, really crafted based on the acoustic environment that we're in. Uh, In a 3000 seat hall, you need a wider brush so that those strokes, those nuances can be experienced in the balcony. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas in this chapel, um, 
really the the 18th century viola with the baroque bow was uh for me very liberating Mm -hmm. um and i felt that i could explore nuance in the way that i wanted to so tell me about the specific instrument that you used who who made yes this this is an italian viola Mm -hmm. uh and it's uh we don't know who made it um and it's probably just after um 1760 i think from the from the wood test Mm-hmm. Uh, probably made in the 1760s. And it's a smaller instrument. Uh, and it, uh, because it's on the smaller side, I've played very large violas and smaller violas, but because this particular instrument is on the smaller side, uh, it allows for um, really feathery um, bow strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, many times I play with two fingers and the thumb on the bow. Uh, and um, that allows for rapid succession of notes, but also um, almost sotto voce, beneath the voice, uh, whispered tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the, the whispered tones um, are very useful in some of these um, cello suites, some of the movements that are so personal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're almost meditations, quiet meditations. Mm-hmm. Do you own this instrument, or is this someone? It is, okay. yes. Okay. What about your other instruments? What you you mentioned, you know, baroque, violin, modern violin, modern viola, electric violin, <laughs> um, and the cello di spalla. Tell 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 me about some of those other instruments. Where where are they from? And you know, maybe if you could talk a little bit more about uh, too about the cello di spalla. A little bit more about about what? the cello di spalla because yes. I don't think people are really particularly familiar with that. Yes. So my instrument collection is varied uh, and I'm blessed to have all of these tools uh, for for musical expression. Mm -hmm. I play uh, a Baroque violin that was made in Vienna in the 1730s. And I actually play uh, my modern violin as a Chicago-made instrument just after World War II. My bows uh, include an 1820s French bow uh, for example, uh, I use that for Beethoven and Brahms. And I have a classical bow made around 1775 in London, uh, John Dodd. And that bow is fascinating. Sergio Luca, the, the late violinist, found it in a trash can at a violin shop. They were throwing away, in the 1980s, they were throwing away all the historical bows because nobody wanted them. Oh, and uh, eventually, Sergio gave it to his friend and colleague, Ken Goldsmith, and eventually Ken Goldsmith gave it to me for my birthday. Wow. Um, and that's a phenomenal bow. It's a, a, such a dark piece of Pernambuco wood, and it has a swan tip. It's so elegant, and it's just fantastic for Mozart. Wow. Uh, I play um, a Ralph Ashmead Baroque bow. I actually have several Baroque bows. Uh, what I like about the ash meat is it's on the longer side and really gets a breadth of tone um, that's deep and rich and complex in overtones. But also because it's a Baroque bow, it naturally wants to make the phraselets that combined make a larger phrase. Mm-hmm. And so the larger phrase is the cantilena, the sung uh, mellifluous line, but the phraselets are the rhetorical statements, the dialogue. Um, and that's why, of course, we use these bows. They they do a lot of that for us. 
Um, my violas uh, include uh, this anonymous 18th century instrument on the smaller side um, and a very large Varagnolo early 20th century uh, Milanese viola. Um, and my cello de spalla actually was a, a collaborative effort of three American luthiers. Uh, when I was uh, looking at shoulder cellos, uh, I was very fascinated with the work of a luthier in uh, the Netherlands, Dmitry Badirov, and his work is excellent, beautiful work. Uh, he copies uh, two instruments, original instruments that are in a museum in Brussels. One has four strings, one has five strings. And what's interesting about the cello da spalla is it has many names, bassetto, violoncino, violonzono. Uh, one name is fagot geige, which is the bassoon fiddle. <laughs> and in fact, what distinguished that instrument was the stringing. They were gut core, double wound in metal. And the raspy sound uh, was said to be like a bassoon. Um, and these instruments were used in choir lofts where space was limited. They were used in theatrical project productions in the streets. Um, the theorist Johann Matheson wrote that every basso continuo section can benefit from uh, cello da spalla because it has a clarity of pitch. Um, and I think because the instrument is pitched like a cello, but smaller, there is a kind of focus to the sound of uh, the instrument is made well and set up well, which is difficult to do. Uh, if you think about it, it's a, a small cello that, uh, that needs to sound like a cello. Mm -hmm. So as I was looking for what I wanted, I, my, my purpose was to mostly play basso continuo to accompany my friends and uh, to play alongside the harpsichordists. And uh, so I wanted the largest cello da spalla I could possibly get with the longest string length so that I could get a real basso sound. Um, and so we worked together over the course of a few years uh, in different US states and there was a lot of driving involved. And finally we got an instrument that that does just what I wanted. Um, and so I have, uh, for example, I accompanied my friend Guy Fishman. Uh, he's a wonderful cellist and he was playing at the Connecticut Early Music Festival a few years ago. And mm -hmm. so uh, uh, the harpsichordist and I uh, were his continual group. And that's what I really wanted to do. Um, and I've enjoyed it for that reason. I don't play it nearly as much as I play violins and violas, but What's wonderful about playing the shoulder cello is that you can play the bass lines uh, in their correct string and in their uh, correct octave. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times violas will play bass lines because it's uh, the viola is pitched an octave higher than the cello, or violinists will try it doing different transpositions and octave leaps that are a little awkward, um, but it's good for score study. But if we really, if a violinist really wants to play hundreds of bass lines and get into that aspect of Baroque music, the best way to do it is with a shoulder cello. Hmm. Cool, cool. So you just seem, you know, have this incredibly versatile <laughs> career and uh, and set of, of skills as, a, as an instrumentalist. Um, what projects or plans are on your to-do list? What's, what's next? What's on the front burner? Thanks for asking. Uh, well, Boulder Bach Festival is really excited to start presenting live concerts again. We're doing it carefully um, because the, the health and well-being of our artists and audience is 
our top priority. So we open in late October and any concert in the next year uh, that needs to occur online instead of live, we will just pivot and do that. For example, if there's a lockdown or a level red um, rise in the pandemic, but we're hoping for the best. We're doing 50% capacity. And uh, uh, here in our, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, uh, there's a, a real um, admiration of scientists and a real respect for science. And the vaccination rate is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we can safely present concerts. And so we open in October with a concert exploring the idea of across time, across cultures. And we're playing several centuries of music from women and men composers, um, living and deceased, and uh, with influences from Roma and Moorish cultures to Balkan dances, Tango Nuevo, uh, and Bach. And the idea is to journey together um, throughout these lands and time periods and to contextualize uh, the music history and the influences along the way. Mm -hmm. um, then we, we move on uh, in December. We perform Handel's Messiah, the Christmas portion, with an ensemble without conductor of one per part soloists. Um, so all the choruses will be sung by vocal quartet wow. and uh, one per part in the instrumental ensemble and then a larger basso continuo section. Okay. And I'm thrilled about that, to be able to do uh, really brisk tempos and to have utter clarity in the virtuoso vocal lines. And uh, I'm so excited about that performance. And then in the spring, we're doing a festival week. And uh, I hope that some of you listening will, will come to Boulder in May of 2022. Uh, in festival week, we have four programs and four nights. Uh, we have masterclasses, uh, lectures, um, various uh, art exhibits and meet and greet the artists over wine and many things happening uh, even a few days before the festival officially opens. There will be some, some events. And the festival is really devoted to Johann Sebastian Bach, but also looking at contemporaries, women composers, men composers of his time, and then going through the subsequent centuries uh, to juxtapose, to contrast and contextualize including uh, a work by a living composer, Gabriella Lena Frank, um, looking at Clara Schumann. Actually, the Schumann uh, performance will be with uh, an exquisite Erard piano uh, built in Paris in Clara Schumann's lifetime. And it turns out that that was her preferred make of piano. Um, so we explored different centuries and, and different period instruments and modern instruments and vocal techniques. Uh, and of course, um, Bach in virtually every genre in which he composed uh, will be featured that week. Also, I've got more recordings. Uh, my, my spouse, Mina Geich, is a pianist who has three 19th century grand pianos. And so we've got a number of recording projects that are coming out, being released, um, and also being recorded in the year ahead. Um, we're really excited about that. Um, and then finally, our, our ensemble and residence at the Bach Festival, Compass Resonance, uh, is playing a number of concerts throughout the region and will do its first recording. Um, uh, Bach concertos, cantatas, and motets. Wow. Goodness, you don't let any grass grow under your feet. <laughs>
Well, I have been speaking with Zachary Caratin, a violinist, violist, and conductor whose new recording of Bach Cello Suites on the viola is called Metamorphosis. Thank you so very much. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. 